All right, uh, this is the second of four classes, and thank everybody for coming. And why don't we, this uh, opening prayer, let us pray. Oh God, whose glory it always is to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from thy ways, and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of thy word, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, going astray from his ways is the, the predicate of what we've been, been talking about. And just about a four-minute recap of where we started out. The whole premise here is that um, crime fiction illustrates and also counterpoints the gospel message. And that it does so by presenting an analysis of the human condition that's consistent with the gospel. Now, the answers, that is the resolution, is often wrong when viewed from a gospel standpoint. But that doesn't mean the, the soundness of the analysis is necessarily off. Theologically, the landscape of any crime novel of any genre you pick up is going to be the fallen world, the post Edenic, the post-lapsarian world. And that world obviously fell away from God, not by accident, but as a result of sin. And we talked a little bit about the, the, the characteristics of sin last time, its, its, its permanence, its universe, universality, and so forth. Um, and of course, sin, and then its wages, death, is, is, the, is the problem that the gospel solves. All right, so that's the framework that, that we, we started out with last time. And I suggest that that's the framework that almost all crime fiction of whatever genre can be read successfully. As we touched on last time, this has nothing to do with, you know, quote, Christian fiction. It has nothing to do with the intent of the author. Contemporary Christian fiction, by that I mean just about all of it. I mean, I'm sorry, contemporary crime fiction and by that I mean since, say, the end of World War II, has been written mostly by people who probably would not consider themselves to be Christians. Certainly they wouldn't consider themselves to be Christians in any orthodox sense of the word. But uh, for our purposes, that doesn't matter. Why doesn't that matter? Because they put things out for our consumption that we have uh, the ability to read by our own Lights. Plus, it's often the fact, and I think a lot of people discover this in other parts of their lives, that some of the most pungent gospel insights are actually brought by people who are, in fact, not Christians and people who are even uh, critics or skeptics with regard to organized religion. All right, so you may remember from last time, we're breaking the world into three kind of sub-genres. There's lots more, but I don't care about the others. Um, one is called... Noir fiction, and again, Coach Ball, what does noir mean? You're married to an educator. You got me on the good Oh, my God. Yeah. Man, a member of the bar, the president of the Birmingham Bar Association. Noir mean, is, French, is a French word for black. Um, so we have noir fiction. We have private detective stories or PI stories or... Uh, a detective who's a member of some police or law enforcement agency. And then thirdly, we have uh, what I call vicarage fiction. That is to say, where the protagonist is 
a priest, a nun, a monk, who is essentially some sort of sleuth and goes around solving crimes, usually in the context of some sort of, some sort of uh, ecclesiastic con context. Today we're going to talk about noir fiction. Okay, so, and a little bit about noir films. Okay, somebody other than Coach Ball. Okay, <laughs> tell me what they understand uh, noir films to be about. Can anybody identify one? They're almost always they're almost always old films. The Maltese Falcon is 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 a noir. It is certainly a film. That, that takes on the aesthetic of it. You know, technically it may not hit it because it actually has a happy ending, or at least a, a decent ending. Uh, and it has an ending where things are put to right. Although you will notice that the only problem in the Maltese Falcon, the only real mystery in the Maltese Falcon is, is uh, who killed his partner. And nobody pays any attention to that. Nobody pays any attention to the only real problem in that movie. Everything else is about, uh, and in the book, same problem. So, yes, that's the kind of atmospheric. So, this notion, what happened was, um, as, as World War II was looming in Europe in the late 30s, a lot of European filmmakers got the heck out of Dodge and ended up in Hollywood. And they brought with them a sort of German expressionist sort of uh, aesthetic that they started making movies with. And at the same time, of course, terrible things were happening. It looked like the entire globe was going to be engulfed in war, which it, which it was. And so uh, uh, they started producing movies that were based on uh, uh, crime stories that had been written in the 20s and 30s. And these were uh, films with very dark themes, they were they were grown-up movies. I mean, they were not musicals, and and you know they they were they were not you know Bob Hope on the Road to Rio, right? They these were these were uh, adult um, films, uh, and this, this is something very new. And then it started making money. Uh, Billy Wilder uh, filmed *The Double Indemnity*, made a lot of money, which is about an insurance scam and a murder, and everybody just ends up badly. Um, and so this sort of took off, and then after the war, there was some there was some retrospectives in France about all these movies, and of course the 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 French film critics say, oh, this is all noir, this is all black, and so that's where we, that's that's how we get here. Um, all right, so but for our purposes, and there's lots of other interesting stuff we could talk about, but for our purposes, what's important about noir film and what caused them to come into being? noir stories. What's important is what I put in that Otto Penzler quote for you there. Noir is about losers. Everybody in the story is a loser. There are no heroes. It doesn't end well. Um, and it doesn't end well because everybody, as he says, uh, is driven by greed, lust, jealousy, or alienation. Uh, Penzler actually owns a great bookstore in New York City called the Mysterious Bookshop, I think it's called. Uh, and he's kind of cantankerous, but, 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 uh, but it's, it's, it's a great store. Um, and, and so the, 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 the characters in these stories uh, are obviously driving to disaster. And nothing really is going to save them. Uh, and they really do not have the capacity 
to save them. Now, he says it's their own lack of morality that drives them to ruin. I think we, in a minute we're going to examine that see if that's really true. The other thing to keep in mind here is that I would bet, uh, for those of you who are here because you actually read crime fiction as opposed to those who are here out of duty or duress, um, the, 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 most of you probably consume detective fiction much more than noir fiction. One is, this is not to a lot of people's taste. It really is not upbeat. I mean, it's just not, it's kind of fun, but it's not, there's nothing upbeat about it. Um, but Pinsler sets out there the distinction between what I'm talking about now and a detective story. In, that, in, a, in, a, in a detective story, a police procedural, there is a, the, there is a good guy. I mean, the, 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 the private detective may be shabby and kind of challenged and slob and an alcoholic and, or, what, or whatever is going on. But at a minimum, he's in better shape than the people he's dealing with. And he's trying to rectify some wrong. So he may be a, a wobbly or tarnished or unlikable hero, but he's nevertheless a hero trying to right uh, the, the world. In the stories I'm talking about, there is no there is no hero, and so what the theological point I think that's interesting, and and you may or may not ultimately end up agreeing with us when we get done, is that we are much more like the characters in most noir stories than we are like the characters, and mainly the protagonists, and that's whom we obviously identify most with, in the detective stories. We are much more like, sure enough, full-blown losers driven by things outside of our own control than we are the uh, uh, damaged and flawed but still ultimately heroic person who sets the world right. And the theological reason for that is because we lack the ability to do that. So that's why, on the one hand, we like noir stories. On the other hand, we're a little repulsed by them. I think part of that repulsion is probably due to self-recognition. And, and, and that makes us deeply, deeply uncomfortable. All right. Um, like I said, most of, this, most of these kind of stories got going in the 20s and 30s and 40s. There were all these, these uh, magazines that don't exist, haven't existed for a long time, uh, Black Mask and all these kind of things, where they were like weekly or monthly cheap magazines and very pulpy. And they, you know, that's, uh, right, that's where pulp stories come from, not pulp fiction, right? It came from these magazines because the paper was cheap. It was made out of pulp. It wasn't nice paper. So these kind of stories were written on in pulp magazines. Um, and um, one of the seminal works here is a novel that we talked about last time, called The Postman Always Rings Twice, okay? Published in 1934. Uh, there have been at least two movies made out of it. One around in the late 40s with Lana Turner, and then a more recent one, I think, in the 80s with, I can't remember who. Um, but, uh, and it's written by James M. Cain, who died in the mid-70s, I think, about 1977. And The Postman Always rings twice but by the way does anybody have any clue what the title means anybody ever had anybody ever, well first anybody ever read this book there you go all right um anybody have any clue what the title might mean even without reading the book i have no idea and nobody knows it's not in the book anywhere kane never explained it 
getting mail, just to be sure, the postman would you'd ring, but then if you didn't get an answer, it would ring again. I think that I think that's true, and so maybe. Back then, you got mail twice a day. And it was insistent. I mean, it was something like you know, if, if the postman rings twice, maybe there's something you got to deliver. Maybe it's a maybe there's some great news. Maybe there's some terrible news. I got no idea. Kane never Kane drank a lot. He never bothered to explain this to anybody. All right. Um, briefly, the story is about two people, two young people. Frank Chambers, who's a 24-year-old drifter, and Cora uh, Papadakis, uh, who is maybe a year younger. Uh, Frank is a drifter. Cora is married to Nick, a Greek who owns a kind of uh, cheesy uh, uh, kind of sandwich shop drive-in thing off a, off a, off a uh, California highway. Um, uh, Frank and Cora immediately have a torrid relationship. They, uh, uh, they, they, they kill Nick by uh, uh, having, a, having a car wreck, which actually injures Frank a good bit. Uh, they turn on each other. Uh, with 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 the cops, they actually escape conviction. Uh, they then try to get back together. Cora gets pregnant. Um, uh, they get back in. They get back in the car. They have another wreck. Uh, uh, Cora is killed, and Frank this time is uh, convicted of, uh, of of murder because there's actually an insurance policy which he didn't know about on her life, and he's executed. Right. So nobody ends up. Well, but that's that's the storyline. All right. It also has the most famous opening line in American crime fiction. They threw me off the hay truck about noon. They threw me off the hay truck about noon. Now, I'll, now it's a good line for lots of reasons. It sounds great. It immediately packs in lots of information about who this person is and what's going what's going on. But it also, on reflection tells us something and illuminates something about gospel principles. So let's break it down into its, its pieces. And let's talk about, uh, and look, you just got to be patient. Look, I mean, I went to graduate school for three years. I mean, you just, you just got to be patient, all right? So let's break it down first. They, in the, they threw me off the hay truck about noon. All right, when we talk about they, we're not talking about us. We're not talking about me. We're talking about them. They is a nameless Mass. They is an unidentified uh, uh, mass. They are faceless. They are the ones out there who inhabit the fallen world. We whistle by the graveyard and think, ah, I don't, but they do. They have no identification. And this is actually a, an odd thing that, that we see in, in crime fiction a lot. Like, actually, the title of this course, Red Harvest. The protagonist there was written by Dashiell Hammett in 1927. He had a, he had a protagonist who is a uh, um, sort of a private investigator, railroad cop type. He's never named, ever. There's, there's half a dozen novels. He never has a name. Um, he works for a private investigation company called uh, Con Continental. So he's referred to as the Continental Operative or the Continental Op. You never know his name. Okay, So when we see they, we see uh, other other people, um, you know, that's a that's in contra That is a characteristic of the fallen world. Because think about when we were uh, consistent with God. God gave Adam the the power to do what? To name, 
to name everything, to name all creatures. Everything was named, right? Because it was precious in God's sight uh, in individually. Even God himself didn't hide his name. His name could be spoken, whereas obviously in Israel it was, it was not to be spoken, at least his true, his true name. So namelessness, anonymity, uh, unknownness is a characteristic of a sinful world. And that's, that's Frank's immediate worldview. They, not me, they. All right, and then and we and we you know and then we we see this where I've got Ephesians and Hebrews down there. The, the, the scripture is 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 riddled with this notion of strangers and aliens and foreigners uh, that 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 there is a deracination. There is no root, okay, and the great mass of people is. Is 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 them there that there is no real rest and in fact the reason why Frank is on the hay truck in the first place is that he's been in Tijuana for three weeks for undisclosed reasons and he's exhausted and trying to sleep it off and he catches the, the, the truck in Mexico and is 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 riding it back up to California. All right, so we have we have them, then we have through. Throwing a person um, is a violent act. It takes a lot of, it actually takes, a, it's like in crime stories, you know, people are always stabbing somebody. It's hard, you know, I mean, th these things take a lot of work. I mean, it's hard to, you know, stab somebody. It's hard to pick up somebody and literally throw them off a vehicle. It's a violent act. And violence, I'd submit, either literal violence or violence against God's word is another, you know, punishing characteristic of the fallen world and of what the gospel has to uh, uh, address. Obviously in the, in the Old Testament there's all you know people are doing all kinds of things to each other this it's in terms of physical violence. Um, but theologically in terms of the gospel that doesn't, that doesn't matter. Viol there's violence in if we pause to reflect about it and if we're honest with ourselves, there's violence in our lives. Every day, there's violence in our lives, and those we love. It's not; it may not be physical violence, but it's most assuredly violence against God's law. We are constantly violating, violating that, and we're also told that not only does the story begin in violence, with the expulsion from Eden, Cain and Abel, but we're told what is going to end in violence with the second coming, the judgment. Fiery Lake, Revelation imagery. Okay, so there, it's 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 clear that violence is at the core of what the gospel addresses, and it's at the core of our daily, of our daily, uh, our daily lives. And in fact, and in fact, the postman always rings twice. I mean, it begins with a violent act. Um, uh, I mean, Nick is killed within pages, and it ends with a violent act, uh, Frank's um, execution. In fact, let me just take a second. Let me just take a second. Uh, this is after he's had the wreck with Cora, and he's been arrested and convicted of 
her murder, even though he thinks he thinks uh, he didn't mean to do it. And he is, uh, you know, he's visited. And all these things, you know, the, 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 the condemned is always visited by the prison chaplain. And in most of these stories, you know, the prison chaplain never comes out very well. I mean, it's, it's, he's, he's always kind of a doofus. But right at the end, um, Frank says, uh, Whenever I can, I'm out there swimming with Cora, with the sky above us and the water around us, talking about how happy we're going to be and how it's going to last forever. I guess... I'm over the big river when I'm there with her. That's when it seems real about another life, not with all this stuff how Father McConnell has got it all figured out. When I'm with her, I believe it. When I start to figure, it all goes bluey. And of course, that's that's the whole point. It all does, in fact, go 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 bluey. All right, so we've got facelessness and alienation in them. We've got violence and again if we're if we're if we think through our own lives these are often characteristics of our own sinful lives then we have the hay truck right i know you're thinking how is Sharman going to get the theological point out of the hay truck okay i know you're thinking well advent christmas you know crash hay yeah yeah no you're wrong you're wrong i know you were thinking that but you're wrong all right Frank is, uh, is is thrown off the truck because he's freeloading. He's he was caught stealing a ride, right? And uh, he 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 is a drifter. He is he he is deracinated. He has no root. He has no stake in anything. He and in particular, he has no stake in 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 the created order. That's what someone or something that drifts does the, the order of things the created order is by definition irrelevant to them okay so the, the significance of that for us is that Frank and Cora because even though she's actually you know married to this you know big old kind of greasy nasty guy you don't you don't even feel too bad that they even kill him I mean, he's, he's kind of a schlub but I mean you don't even feel too bad they kill him but Cora's the same, I and mean, she's just as much a drifter, really, as Frank is. And the significance of that is being deracinated, being wholly unrooted in the gospel, means also that we are disabled from accepting love. And although characters in these stories do not have much self, uh, do not have much self-awareness. Uh, Nick, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Frank and Cora actually do, and this is after they've uh, actually been able to walk on the, uh, the original murder charges, and, um, and, uh, Cora says to Frank, God kissed us on the brow that night. He gave us all that two people could ever have. And we weren't just the kind that could have it. We had all that love, and we just cracked up under it. It's a big airplane engine that takes you through the sky right up to the top of the mountain. That's their, that's their code for like their, this wonderful life that they're going to get with the insurance money. It takes you right up to the top of the mountain, but when you put it in a Ford, it just shakes it to pieces. That's what we are, Frank, a couple of Fords. God is up there laughing at us, and Frank says, the hell he is. 
Well, we're laughing at him too, aren't we? He put up a red stop sign for us and we went past it. And then what? Did we get shoved off the deep end? We did like hell. We got away clean and got $10,000 for doing the job. So God kissed us on the brow. Then the devil went to bed with us. And believe you me, kid, he sleeps pretty good. All right, so at least Cora understands and is upset about it. And Frank understands and doesn't really care that, in fact, they are incapable of receiving God's love. It is irrelevant that he kissed them on the brow because they were, as Cora says, you know, a, a Ford. I mean, a, 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 an inexpensive vehicle that, unlike the big airplane, could not handle that. All right, and then finally they threw him off about noon. This is probably less important, but I think it's, it still makes sense. Is of course, noon is the hour at which Jesus hung upon the cross, from about noon till about three. It's the, uh, that's what Luke reminds us of. It's the hour of judgment. It's the hour of payment. It's the hour of, of blood. It's the hour of murder, because although obviously the crucifixion was a result of a legal process, it was a show process. It was essentially murder. Um, and I don't know why this is, or maybe, maybe that is why it is, but noon has that significance for us. I mean, anybody ever see the movie, High Noon, okay? It, you know, it wouldn't have the same significance. It wouldn't have the same pop if it were high 947, right? There is something about noon and its tolling that is derived from Golgotha that brings with it a freight of gospel meaning, okay? So, um, so it's a great line, probably the one of the best lines uh, in in American crime fiction. There's another one actually in the novel Great Harvest. I don't know if we're ever actually getting to talk about the novel that Dashiell Hammett wrote, where the Continental Op has gotten in a fight and he's overpowering some guy, and he says, "I hit him with the door repeatedly." And I think that's a great line because it, you know, I just the, the the notion of calmness. I mean, to hit a guy with the door one time is, I mean, I mean, again, it's a violent act. To do it repeatedly packs in a lot of a lot of meaning, but that's another story. All right, so we're talking about noon, and we're talking about judgment. We're talking about what Luke recounts in the familiar scene, but you know, judgment, of course, puts us in mind of law. As a storytelling device, law obviously is in 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 crime stories is is necessary. If there's, if there's no law and there's no law breaking, there's no there's no story. Okay, it can be different kinds of law, but I mean you got to have some rule that is broken to make the story go. All right. Um, so let's think a second. Just based on what little I've talked about. And what little Ellen may remember. What is Frank's and Cora's relationship to the law? How do they perceive the law and how does it work on them? Because I think the answer to that is, 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 is important. And I'll, I'll, t I'll tell you why in a minute. And you're not going to like the reason I tell you why, but we'll deal with that in, in a little bit. 
Well, one, one relationship, obviously, is that they have violated the law in order to, for monetary gain. I mean, they've, they've committed a, a, a crime. They've, they've, they've killed somebody to try to get in the proceeds of an insurance policy. So that's the easy one. That's kind of a, that's kind of a storytelling one. Um, um, what, any other kind of relationships with the law other than that, that immediate one? Which makes the which makes the narrative go. Um, I, I you know I th I think I mean obviously so they break it they're prosecuted by it they escape initially and then they're ultimately they're ultimately doomed by it again the California Penal Code I'm talking about. Right. I, I think one answer and it's not the only one but I think one answer if if we're talking about well what does this have to do with the illumination of the gospel is that Frank and Cora live wholly and completely and without ceasing under the law. There is no other aspect of their existence to which they can point other than the law and its judgments. Okay? They, um, if you look at Romans 7 and verse 7 to 8 there, where St. Paul is talking about this very, at first, counterintuitive, or at least it was counterintuitive to me, notion that, okay, if I hadn't known the law, I wouldn't have known sin. <coughs> and he, and in, and in, he goes on to specify, which I think is would be, I think Frank and Cora would say absolutely, he says, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You know, probably the real, the, the, most, the most compelling sin that Frank and Cora commit is, is not so much murder, it's probably covetousness. Frank covets her immediately. I mean, just right when he's the first time he the first time he sees her. Hang on here. I've forgotten how quickly he killed him. Uh, he says. Then I saw her. She'd been out back in the kitchen, but she came in to gather up my dishes. Except for the shape, she really wasn't any raving beauty. But she had that sulky look to her, and her lips stuck out in a way that made me want to mash them in for her. And so it was an immediate sexual covetousness. Uh, Cora just wants to get, get out of life with Nick. She doesn't want to be stuck in this diner on this dusty California highway. Um for the rest of her life. She covets what she thinks is another life. They don't have any way else to contrast, any other means by which they can contrast that because they are anonymous and deracinated. They are truly, um, truly drifters. So in a sense, what 
in a real sense, what Paul says here is exactly what is happening to them. If there were no law against coveting, there would have been no postman always rings twice. It's only the law against coveting that causes Frank to want to mash her lips in for her. So so that's where they are. That's why this story accurately describes the sort of post-lapsarian human condition. But the problem is Paul goes on to say, or really to ask, but the answer is implicit in the question, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Frank and Cora would absolutely agree with the first part. You know, wretched person that I am. Uh, they might ask the second question as a, as a rhetorical question. Geez, who's going to get me out of this jam kind of thing? Who can I turn on or kill or betray uh, to get out of this jam? Um, but the, the core problem is in the story is not the fact that Frank and Cora don't believe, that they have no belief, or they're not religious or something. I mean, that, that never even comes in. I mean, that's that, 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 that not even a concept. But that's not the problem. The problem is in the story, there is no one or no thing capable of saving them from this body of death. So to them, it's irrelevant. A conversion experience would be irrelevant, okay? Because there is no thing. There is no being. There is no covenant. There is no gospel that would then rescue them from this body of death. So that's, that's, why, that's, that's why it ends up that way. Now, of course, now this is why I say that the analysis is great and the conclusion is wrong because we know that there is someone and that an act of substitutionary atonement has in fact occurred that will save us from this body of death. But this is, this is critical because here's the unpleasant takeaway point. We are all at heart Frank or Cora. Right? We all are. Now we, we are... The distinction between me and Frank is not ethical. I am more ethical than he is. I am, I'm a lot older and slower, but I'm probably better looking than Frank. I don't sleep in hay trucks, right? Okay, so, but the, but the distinction is not ethical. It's not even practical, really. Um, uh, the, 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 the distinction is not that, that I can obey the law generally, Right. I mean, either whether it's a penal code or, or, or Sunday school niceties or whatever, that's, that's not the difference between me and Frank. The only difference between me and Frank is external. Because it has been revealed to me that there is something, someone, some event that does save from this body of death. Other than that, I'm Frank. Other than that, you are Cora. So the, that's, the, that's the recognition that's offensive, really. It's kind of repulsive in a way. But it's very true. This is like my uh, Timothy McVeigh story. I, I think I've told you all this a couple of times. I was teaching a Sunday school class, uh, uh, junior high. That's so long ago, you may have been there. Um, uh, junior high, and 
they had uh, um, uh, 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 verses from Amazing Grace on the wall. Then they had photos up there. All kind of photos, like people in a bread line. And they had a photo of Mother Teresa. And they had a photo of Timothy McVeigh. Remember, blew up the, the Farrah building in Oklahoma City. Uh, had him in you know manacles. Um, and well, I take that I take that back. They had everybody but McVeigh. I found McVeigh's big picture in the closet, and I thought, oh, well, the cleaning people had taken it down or knocked it down something. So I put McVeigh back up on the wall. Come in next Sunday, McVeigh's back in the closet. I put him back up. Come in next Sunday, he's still in the closet. I put him back up. I asked Gil Cracky. I said, what? What's the deal with McVeigh? So Gil says, I don't know. I'm going to go find out. Turns out that some people, teacher, somebody at the school, had been offended, had been troubled by the moral equivalence of McVeigh and Mother Teresa, that somehow they were the same. And, of course, that's the point here. Obviously, Mother Teresa was more ethical. Obviously, she was more faithful. Obviously, McVeigh, on his execution day, did not repent any more than Frank did. Okay, But as sinners, they are identical. There's no point in putting McVeigh in the closet. There's no point pretending you're not Frank. There's no point in pretending you're not Cora. You are. I am. Okay. The, the point is that uh, um, it's been revealed to us that there is something, someone, an event that takes away and solves that problem. Okay, we're out of time. You can take home, though, the, the excerpt from a great recent novel, 2009, called The Ghosts of Belfast. Long story short, the protagonist is named Jerry Fagan. Jerry Fagan is a recently released from prison hitman for the IRA. Uh, he is tormented by the ghosts of the dozen people or so that he has killed. And they are very real to him. They go with him everywhere. And their penance on him is that he has to go kill those IRA officers who ordered him to kill them. Okay, He, he, kills, he kills them all. A, a mother and her, who, who was present in a bakery with her child where Jerry had planted a bomb, both the baby and the mother were killed. Uh, she's the only one left. Okay. Fagan thinks that she is now demanding, as you'll see there, he says, I did everything you guys wanted. I killed them all. And he's now thinking she wants him, right? Judgment, law. The little girl of a woman he's actually been trying to help escape the wrath of a, another IRA officer comes in, asks Fagan, right, they're sitting, in the, it's a great scene, they're sitting in the, in the bathroom, Fagan is sitting on the side of the tub, he's got his right arm, he's got his gun in his right arm, he's hiding it in, along the porcelain so the little girl won't see it because as soon as she walks out he's going to kill himself. And she comes in and says, where's the baby? And Fagan says, what? And she says, the secret lady, that's what he calls, that's what she calls his visions, the secret lady. Where's the secret lady's baby? Okay. And Fagan says, in heaven, just, I think, just to say something. Right? And what you'll see is that changes the nature of the accusatory vision. And she says something none of his other visions have ever said anything, and he leaves. So it's not quite a noir novel because it actually has a little bit of, 
a little bit of hope, but it's a great it's a great book. All right. Go in peace, love and serve the Lord.